Bob Murphy Show, episode 221. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be tackling two separate topics because neither one of them was long enough to justify a full episode. And I thought, you know what? All the other podcasters talk about multiple things per episode, so why can't I? So first I'm going to be talking about Biden's recent tweet concerning family leave. And then I will talk about some trends I've seen in the discussion, let's call it about post-libertarianism, where uh, I just want to make some remarks in this initial discussion about potential dangers and just things people should keep in mind. So if you want to be glib about it, I'll say come for the economics lecture and stay for the sermon. So as far as Biden goes, he recently, when when was this? On October 22nd, 2021, at 2.09 p.m., Biden tweets out, or whoever was running his account, of course, tweets out, we are one of the few industrial, it actually says counties, that should be countries, we are one of the few industrial counties in the world that doesn't have paid leave. My paid leave plan includes four weeks of federally funded leave. It's good for businesses and it's good for families. Okay, so to the extent I didn't go in and delve into the specifics of what he's proposing, if it's federally funded, meaning the federal government is picking up the tab, then I would object to that on obvious grounds that just having the federal government take on this huge new liability is not making us more efficient. Let me discuss, though, to the extent that maybe it won't be fully funded federally. There's a tongue twister. Because I had seen previous versions, not necessarily coming from Biden, where they did want to just have paid family leave that was just mandated on the employer. All right, so let me just walk through the analysis of that. Because what that would do is increase the so-called wage gap. And I had talked about this on Twitter and some people were in astonishment. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? What the heck would paid family leave and giving parents the right to spend more time with their kids? And this is what every advanced country has except us. What the heck does that have to do with the unfair payment of women? So let me explain. Okay, first of all, I know this won't come as a surprise to regular listeners of this podcast, but in case you're trying to make the point to somebody else who isn't steeped in free market economics, just remind yourself that the vast majority of workers in the United States make more than the minimum wage. So I just went in preparation for this episode and pulled up the Bureau of Labor Statistics most recent table. So this is referring to 2020 annual averages. And it says that for the entire workforce of 16 years and older, there were 73.3 million workers who were paid hourly rates, right? So we're not talking about salary earners and people compensated 
in a different fashion, but just people who are paid by the hour, 73.3 million such people, 16 years and older. And out of them, we had 1.1 million were at or below the federal minimum wage. All right, and so that might surprise you that there's lots of people who are legally employed at below the federal minimum wage. And that breakdown, incidentally, is 247,000 were precisely the federal minimum and 865,000 were below the federal minimum. So overall, that's 1.5% of the hourly wage earners who make at or below the federal minimum. So that means 98.5% make above the federal minimum. Incidentally, let me just mention, that might not be fully informative because there are some states that have a higher minimum wage than the federal floor, right? So the federal government says anybody in the U.S., you got to get paid at least this amount. But some states have a state minimum wage that's even higher than the federal floor. Okay, so for the point that I'm making, this number might understate it somewhat, but there's plenty of states where that's not the case, you know, where the state, in other words, doesn't have a state level that's higher than the federal floor. And you see a similar outcome where the vast majority of even the hourly wage earners in that state make above the legal minimum. All right. Also, too, you can see that this table I'm looking at also breaks it down by educational status or attainment. So remember, in the overall population, I'll just do the people earning exactly at the federal minimum. Overall population, it's 0.3% of the wage earners earn exactly the federal minimum wage. But then if you say, what about if you just look at the workers who have less than a high school diploma, that jumps to 1% earn exactly the minimum wage, right? So in the general population, it's 0.3. But if you're just looking at workers who have less than a high school diploma in terms of educational attainment, then it jumps to 1% of such workers earn it precisely the federal minimum wage, all right? And then if you ask, oh, what about the people who have a bachelor's degree or higher with rounding, it's exactly 0% who earn the federal minimum wage, okay? So those numbers kind of make sense, or they should if you understand what they're saying, that a general population, very few workers earn exactly the federal minimum wage. But then if you break it down, the workers who haven't even gotten a high school diploma, there's a higher percentage of them compared to the general population who make exactly the federal minimum. And if you look at the people who've at least gotten a bachelor's degree, it's virtually no, none of those people make precisely the federal minimum, right? They make more. Okay. So that's actually just as a clarification, it's still 1% of the people who have a bachelor's degree and higher who are making less than the federal minimum wage. And I'm not sure off the top of my head, that might be because they're like, they're doing internships or something. I'm not sure if they get counted in these numbers or if it's, you know, other things like, you know, there's people with disabilities that there's exemptions and you're allowed to pay them less. Or also too, it could be with like restaurant workers and things like, like if you're earning tips, those types of people might be getting rolled into these. So I'm not sure exactly, but regardless of what the reasoning is for how come you can be earning less, these numbers still make sense. And they do what you would expect that the vast majority of people make more than the minimum wage. And then if you look at the ones who aren't, it lines up as you would expect that the people with 
lower degrees of educational attainment are more likely to make less than or at the minimum wage than the others. Okay. So what's my point going through all this? That when you're talking about federal mandates on like what employers need to do for their employees, a lot of the opposition to your discussion, if you're coming at it from a free market perspective, is people who think, oh no, the employers, you know, they have no reason to give any kind of perks or compensation to employees unless the politicians stick a gun to their head. And that anything that the employer is forced by law to give to the employees comes out of profits. And my point is, if that were true, if that simplistic worldview were correct or even remotely correct, you would expect most workers to make at or at least near the minimum wage. And yet we don't see that in practice. Again, in practice, the vast majority make more than the minimum wage, as I've already shown you these statistics. And then I'm just going to tell you, it's not like everybody just makes 50 cents an hour more than the minimum wage, right? Most people make a lot more than the minimum wage. And so you have to wonder, well, why would that be? And presumably, as an economist, I would say it's because labor markets, even though they're not perfect and there's lots of intervention that prevents the ultimate attainment of this ideal, but there is a tendency for workers to bid up the wages of employees to reflect their marginal productivity, right? So if you could get a worker to come and work for you for free and that would boost your take-home profits as the owner of the firm by $20 an hour, well, then that means you would be willing to pay up to $20 an hour to hire that employee, right? Just simplifying the analysis. Let's, you know, leave out a lot of wild cards there, but you get the basic gist of what I'm saying. You would prefer not to pay that much, right? And ultimately, if you had to pay $20 an hour to get someone to come and boost your free wage revenues by $20 an hour, it wouldn't be worth it to you because you'd just be a wash. But still, that would be the upper bound on what you'd be willing to pay. Right? Even if you paid $19 an hour to somebody who boosted your profits, not counting the wages for that employee by 20, you're still making an extra dollar an hour. So you know, if you like profit as an employer, why wouldn't you do that? Okay, so that's the basic way that economists argue that in the long run, there's a general tendency for workers to get paid their marginal product because of competition, not because the employers are kind-hearted, but because they like money, they like profit. All right, so if that's the case, then if a, the government comes and levies a mandate that causes businesses to give a different type of compensation to some workers, well, then that means those workers have to see their pay go down or they're not going to get hired in the first place, right? Because the, the firm is already paying what the employee is worth. And by the way, if you want to get realistic about it and say, well, no, they're not going to pay exactly what the employee is bringing in because then there's no benefit. Okay, fine. But still, that real world correction you made to the standard textbook argument still holds when we bring in mandates too. Okay, so if let's say somebody's making, you know, when the dust settles, somebody's getting paid $10 an hour. And now the government comes along and says, oh, by the way, every hour that an employee works, you, the firm employing them, has to give them a $1 coin. You know, it's a commemorative coin issued by the U.S. government that is worth $1. You can use them in subways and stuff if you haven't seen them. They, those, those exist. There are $1 coins. So, you, you know, just to, we're trying to encourage currency or token usage, especially in big cities and stuff like that, where people might have to use a subway and whatever. So what we're going to do is just have the employers do it, 
So any employee who makes an hourly wage rate, what you have to do as an employer is every hour you have somebody go around the company and just hand out a dollar token, you know, coin to these people. Are we going to say that's just not going to affect wages at all? No. Generally speaking, you would expect that that would mean now the firm, instead of giving the people $10 an hour in their wage in terms of the checks they get every two weeks, is only going to get $9 per hour that way because the firm is now giving them a dollar in the form of the coin that they got to hand over. And again, that's robust to whatever you think their marginal product is. You think those employees are actually generating $12 an hour, but they're only getting paid 10 because the employer's skimming two off the top. Okay, fine. But then when the firm is now forced by law to give these dollar coins to maintain that $2 skimming, they're still going to have to reduce how much they put in the checks that they give to the employees by a dollar an hour to make up for it. Okay? So I think that's pretty straightforward. And so now things get a little more complicated. What if instead the government says anybody who is an hourly worker and has red hair has to get these dollar coins handed out by the employer for every hour they're working? What's going to happen then? Well, you would expect to see that the people who have red hair have their wages go down by a dollar an hour in terms of the checks they're getting because now that's being offset by the fact that they're getting those coins. Whereas the other workers, you wouldn't expect that to happen. Okay, now, if there's laws against discrimination and it would be illegal and if the people with red hair could bring lawsuits, that complicates things. And it might just mean employers now on the margin just don't want to hire people with red hair. If they're being, on the one hand, forced by law to effectively pay them with this coin, pay them a dollar an hour more than their mere, you know, checks correspond to. And if it's also illegal for them to pay them a lower amount in terms of the checks than they pay to somebody else who's a, quote, comparable worker, then, yeah, that solution is just not to hire them, you know, or they can come up with there's ways that the personnel departments and whatnot can come up with to try to camouflage that. Like, they don't just need to send a memo out saying, don't hire anybody with red hair, because that would be illegal under labor law, presumably. But they can come up with ways to do that. Right? Just like, again, one of my favorite go-to examples is the, with the carbon tax. That's one area in which progressives understand that when the government makes something expensive, firms engage in less of it. Same thing here. If you're all of a sudden now saying that hiring workers with red hair is going to cost the firm an extra dollar an hour, then the firm's going to either try to offset that by reducing their wages, but if they're not allowed to do that for legal reasons, because that's going to be construed as discrimination, then they're going to try not to hire them in the first place. All right, so that's pretty straightforward. I hope I've not lost many of you listeners so far. Okay, and so now, what if instead of all that, we have a situation where the government says, if you're a worker and you have a baby and you tell your employer that you're taking four weeks off and you still have to get paid even though you're not showing up and adding anything to the bottom line, well, as an employer, that's very disruptive. And so other things equal, that's going to make you pay your employees less per hour in terms of what are the checks written for to compensate for the fact that now you've got this additional expense that you didn't have before. And to the extent that certain workers are more likely to exercise this option than others, 
it's not just going to be an across-the-board reduction in official wages. There's going to be a bigger hit on those employees who are more likely to exercise that option. Right? And so this is pretty straightforward stuff. Again, in the real world, yeah, everything's not perfect. People aren't just superhuman robots who just make calculations and everyone gets paid exactly their discounted marginal value product down to the penny. But whatever those forces are, they're still operating. And when the government makes an employee possibly much more expensive, then that's going to have ramifications. And again, what the way you would see that show up is that the employees who are more likely to exercise that new costly option on the front end are either going to be less likely to be hired in the first place, or if they are hired, we would expect to see their official wage amounts go down to compensate for the fact that they're riskier. So it's true, and people, you know, I've seen these debates before, and people will say, oh, this isn't just about women, you know, so there's no reason to expect the wage gap to change because men can take it to, yeah, legally they can, the way these parental leave laws are written or family leave act, what have you, are written. But in practice, employers will know that's not likely to be the outcome. That in practice, it's going to more likely be, you know, so if a 25-year-old newly married woman applies for a job, she is much more likely to exercise and receive the four weeks of mandated paid leave than a 50-year-old single man or even a 50-year-old married man for that matter. All right, and so you would see these disparate impacts. Also, just very briefly, Biden, he says at the end of this tweet, it's good for businesses and it's good for families. So I responded, if it's good for businesses, just fax your calculations to all the CFOs and they'll do it without being forced. Okay, now, in fairness, I had read this quickly and I didn't fully process his, the federally funded leave part. All right, so if he's saying it's good for businesses for the federal government to come and pay for extra perks for their employees, I mean, yeah, it's good in the sense if, if those tax funds were obtained without cost, that would be good for business in that sense, just to like to say, hey, if the federal government just sent $10,000 to every citizen, that would be good for the citizens. Like, There's a sense in which, okay, yeah, if you just look at the one side of the equation, that that's makes sense. Okay, but I have seen, and this is why I misunderstood what he was saying there, I have seen proponents of mandatory paid family leave who are not saying the government's going to subsidize it, just saying, no, just mandate businesses do this out of their own bottom line, argue that it's good for businesses. And they'll say things like, oh, because it reduces employee turnover. And in fact, people did say this to me, even in this discussion on Twitter. I had some pushback from Biden supporters telling me that, no, it, it, this wouldn't hurt businesses. And they weren't relying on the fact that it was a federal subsidy. They were saying stuff like, like they were saying, even now, if you look at the companies that have such policies in place, because, you know, some companies do this without being forced, including schools, by the way, even private schools, especially, you know, for elementary level, that it's commonplace. If, oh, my normal teacher isn't here this year because, you know, she had a baby and that's why we have the substitute. But then she's coming back once, you know, once the baby's older, that kind of stuff, right? The teacher doesn't lose her job forever just because she had a baby. So people are arguing, oh, if some businesses do this voluntarily, it must be good for business. And so it won't hurt anything to mandate it. And that's the thing I want to push back on and say, well, wait a minute, if that's true, well, then why do you need to force them to do it? 
right? So now we're saying that you, the casual observer on Twitter, knows more about how all these businesses across the country can improve their bottom lines, even though you don't know anything else about the business, that you know more about it than the people who run the business. That seems unlikely. And even if you did, okay, just spell out exactly what they're missing. You know, it's in their interest to understand it. And so we run into this phenomenon that you see elsewhere where the standard progressive critic of free market capitalism, who, you know, is very much in favor of the interventionist state, will, depending on the argument, think businesses are ruthless, penny-pinching cost cutters who will do anything to wring an extra few pennies of profit out of a system, whether that means they despoil the environment or they ruin some community by laying off all the workers and outsourcing the factory to Indonesia. You know, businesses will do all sorts of nefarious things to make a buck, except something that is socially progressive. In that case, even if it's profitable for the firm to do it, they just won't do it out of malice or ignorance, right? And you run into this problem like with the so-called male-female wage gap, when people say, oh, women in the United States get paid, whatever the latest number is, 89 cents to the man's dollar for the same job or the same work. And you say, well, if that's true, you tell me there's not just one employer in the entire country who can read those reports like you can and then just say, hey, let's start hiring women and we'll pay them, you know, let, let's lay off all of the men on our payroll and replace them with women and just pay them 92 cents to the man's dollar, right? So the, the women should all come flock to our firm because we're paying them a few cents more per, you know, percentage points more. But we'll still save, we'll reduce our labor costs for any, any of the men we laid off by 8%. So why don't we do that? And they say, oh, well, because they're sexist. So, you say, so it's, you know, this institutional sexism is so strong that there's not a single firm in the entire country that's willing to reduce their labor cost on the male portion of their workforce by 8%, such as their hatred of women, right? But again, they would be willing to destroy the planet, you know, ruin communities and so forth, just be vilified in the press to make a buck. But even if they could make hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on how big their organization is, they won't do it because they refuse to admit that women are good employees, right? It's just, and again, it's not for that argument to work. It's not that, we, the free market community, need to show or claim that the vast majority of employers would do that. We just need to say a few would. And they, you know, so there should be a few firm, big firms that just have 98% women working for them because they're so cheap for the same labor output, same productivity. But, and we don't see that. You know, like even Oprah, why doesn't Oprah just have a whole empire just run by women? You know, it's, it's amazing that it's not just the men, the patriarchal CEOs and boards of directors, but all the women entrepreneurs too don't just have their firms fully staffed by women, even though by hypothesis, they're all so much cheaper to hire, right? And so obviously I'm being somewhat tongue in cheek. The, the reason is other things equal. It's not true in the United States that a woman gets paid 89 cents or whatever the figure is for quote the same work as a man. All right, so that's what's going on. Hey, folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's switch over to the other topic I wanted to discuss, which is, and here I'm just going to 
take a rough cut at this. This is my first attempt to really talk about some of these issues, and I'll, I'll certainly revisit this as needed. For example, I'm working through, some people have sent me some uh, Curtis Yarvin, Mencius Moldbug, essays on, on some of this stuff, and so I'm still reading a few of those things and listening to some other podcast episodes from various people. But the big picture is there's a growing sentiment that I've been seeing online of people saying things along the lines of, hey, you know, you libertarians, you got your nice little fantasy land and your books and stuff where you're envisioning a free market utopia and you might be right. Yep, maybe that is the ideal world. But you know what? That's not the world we live in right now. The world we live in right now, there's lockdowns. 45% of the population hates our guts. They will not respond to reason or facts. And you can't use logic to defeat such an enemy we need to use the state. And you sitting there wringing your hands with your principles and your NAP, we're all going to get loaded up into boxcars and shipped off to oblivion. But hey, at least you'll have your purity. And you can pat yourself on the back knowing that you didn't initiate aggression. Good for you while we're all dead, right? Something like that. I'm sure lots of you have heard things like that. So let me perhaps take a move that you wouldn't be expecting. Let me read something from 1984. And I think that's the best way just to jump into my concern with that train of thought. All right, so this is from the excerpt I'm looking at here says part two, chapter eight. So I don't know what page number this is. This is like a sort of an online HTML version. Okay, so at this point, if I remember how the story progresses, Winston and Julia have started to believe that O'Brien, even though he's a member of the party, is actually working for the resistance. And so they're going to his house to see what's up, to see if he's going to let them in on the conspiracy against Big Brother. All right, and so I'm skimming along here to see when I should start reading it for you guys. So he turns off the telescreen and in his house. And Julia uttered a tiny sound, a sort of squeak of surprise. Even in the midst of his panic, Winston was too much taken aback to be able to hold in his tongue. You can turn it off, he said. Yes, said O'Brien, we can turn it off. We have that privilege. Okay, and so now they're sitting there. And so then O'Brien says, shall I say it or will you? I will say it, said Winston promptly. That thing is really turned off. He's referring to the telescreen. Yes, everything's turned off. We are alone. We have come here because... He paused, realizing for the first time the vagueness of his own motives. Since he did not, in fact, know what kind of help he expected from O'Brien, it was not easy to say why he had come here. He went on, conscious that what he was saying must sound both feeble and pretentious. We believe that there is some kind of conspiracy, some kind of secret organization working against the party, and that you are involved in it. We want to join it and work for it. We are enemies of the party. We disbelieve in the principles of Ingsoc. So that's English socialism for those who haven't read 1984. We are thought criminals. We are also adulterers. I tell you this because we want to put ourselves at your mercy. If you want us to incriminate ourselves in any other way, we are ready. He stopped and glanced over his shoulder, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then O'Brien gives them glasses of wine, which they've never had before. It's called wine, said O'Brien with a faint smile. You will have read about it in books, no doubt. Not much of it gets to the outer party, I'm afraid. His face grew solemn again and he raised his glass because... O'Brien, by the way, is part of the inner party. I think it is fitting that we should begin by drinking a health to our leader, to Emmanuel Goldstein. So if you remember 
Goldstein is, you know, public enemy number one, that Big Brother's always blaming everything on Goldstein. And that's, you know, the, the rallying villain for the people who are living in the world of 1984. Okay, so Winston says, there's such a person as Goldstein? Yes, there is such a person, and he's alive. Where? I do not know. In the conspiracy, the organization, is it real? It is not simply an invention of the thought police? No, it's real. The Brotherhood, we call it. You will never learn much more about the Brotherhood than that it exists and that you belong to it. I will come back to that presently. He looked at his wristwatch. It is unwise even for members of the inner party to turn off the telescreen for more than half an hour. And then he gives them some logistical instructions about how they're going to leave the, his house. Okay, now the part for the reason I started reading this to you guys. Okay, so you, comrade, he bowed his head to Julia. You will leave first. We have about 20 minutes at our disposal. You will understand that I must start by asking you certain questions. In general terms, what are you prepared to do? Anything that we are capable of, said Winston. O'Brien had turned himself a little in his chair so that he was facing Winston. He almost ignored Julia, seeming to take it for granted that Winston could speak for her. For a moment, the lids flitted down over his eyes. He began asking his questions in a low, expressionless voice, as though this were a routine, a sort of catechism, most of whose answers were known to him already. You are prepared to give your lives? Yes. You are prepared to commit murder? Yes. To commit acts of sabotage, which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people? Yes. To betray your country to foreign powers? Yes. You are prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the power of the party? Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve our interests to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. You are prepared to lose your identity and live out the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. You are prepared to commit suicide if and when we order you to do so? Yes. You are prepared, the two of you, to separate and never see one another again? No, broke in Julia. Okay, so I'll stop there. So that's interesting in terms of the, you know, just the narrative that, you know, what what is Orwell trying to get across there? And I think you know, showing the difference between Winston and Julia, that Winston's going along, being a tough guy, agreeing to all this stuff. And finally, she draws the line, even though O'Brien wasn't talking to her, saying that, no, you know, the one thing that we are not going to do is betray each other, right? So I'm not going to give a spoiler, but for those who have read the book, you can remember what happens near the end that's, you know, tying back to that scene. So, you know, so that's, that's interesting that, you know, what, what is Orwell trying to get across there? And I won't, I won't dwell on it, but I, I don't think that's just some random little detail. I think he meant something significant by that. But for our purposes, what am I getting at? Do you see how O'Brien tricked them? And so, yeah, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, but O'Brien's not the good guy in the story. He's setting them up. He's pretending to be part of the resistance in order to flush them out. And so later... In the story, he brings this stuff up again. You know, when Winston's resisting him and trying to say that, no, Winston's the good guy and O'Brien's the bad guy and that kind of stuff and resisting the mind destruction that O'Brien's trying to unleash on him besides the physical pain. And O'Brien brings that up. 
and says, what are you talking about? You already admitted you would kill innocent people that you would throw acid in the face of a child. So no, there's no difference between us. It's just we have more power than you do. All right, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I believe that's the point of that. That O'Brien later reminds Winston that no, you don't have any principles to stand on. You wanted to defeat the party and you admitted you would do anything. You threw all your morals out the window. You, you know, you're not the principled opposition. You don't have any principles. All right, so you can't be mad at us for doing whatever it takes to achieve our ends because you said the same thing. It's just we happen to have the upper hand right now, so you're mad that we won, that we have more power than you do, boo-hoo. But you have no right to be, to feel indignation about it. You're not better than us, okay? So, I mean, actually, O'Brien was probably more of a mind assault than that because he said that Winston doesn't exist. Winston had earlier asked his big brother exist and he said yes and he said in the same sense that I exist and I think O'Brien says well you don't exist or something like that or there's yeah I think that's what he said. So anyway just to spell out what's my point here is that I agree with the very pessimistic people calling themselves post-libertarian that things are going to get crazy in this country and elsewhere around the world that for a while, people thought that, oh, 2020 was awful, but hey, at least 2021 will start get back. And no, 2021 did not swing back to normalcy. And things I think are going to get even crazier in 2022. And so a lot of stuff that is really just merely hypothetical abstractions at this point, like, well, gee, what would you be willing to do in circumstances X, Y, Z might start coming true. And people are going to be put into difficult moral conundrums where they're going to have to choose. And so I am suggesting that you decide ahead of time what your value system is and figure out what is it that, you know, you will not do. Because when you're in the situation, it's going to be harder to step back and avoid where the chaos is taking you. It was similar um, when I was in, when I was a professor at Hillsdale, this student came up to me and he asked me, he had, he was seriously thinking about joining and going over into Afghanistan. And so yeah, I was younger at the time, and I, I didn't feel it was my role or qualified or that I had the uh, authority to like tell him what to do with his life. But I warned him, I said, look, I've talked to some people and you know, read accounts. And I said, if you go over there, events might get swept away from you where you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to do something that right now you're not anticipating. And that if you knew ahead of time what you were going to have to do in that situation, you would not want to find yourself there. But once you're there, you know, it's going to be a quote, an impossible choice. And I had in mind things like I had read accounts of, you know, there were guys who were guarding a Marine base and some ladies driving a truck towards them and she didn't speak English and they're telling her to stop, telling her to stop. She wasn't. And they just opened fire and took her out and there was a kid in the car and there weren't explosives in there, but they didn't know that. It was just, she didn't understand English. All right. Stuff like that is what I'm saying that, you know, those guys didn't sign up for that, but once they're there, you know, it's thrust upon them. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So I really would urge people who are, getting frustrated and say, hey, this standard stuff's not working. I said, we got to do something. Think it through carefully and just determine what you're willing to do. And if the answer is, well, anything, well, then 
you really aren't different from the people you're claiming to oppose. All right. Let me also mention there's a famous scene in The Matrix that I've seen some people making allusions to. So here, well, we'll go ahead and, and play that. Take a listen. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Who is it? This... This isn't the Matrix. No. It's another training program designed to teach you one thing. If you are not one of us, you are one of them. What are they? Sentient programs. They can move in and out of any software still hardwired to their system. That means that anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent. Okay. Cool stuff. Fantastic movie. Love it. All kinds of useful metaphors for us to use in our current discourse. Not the least of which, of course, is all the various colored pills. But in that respect... What Morpheus is saying is incredibly dangerous. And I would say the, the path to evil that now he doesn't come out and say it right there, but to try to understand, well, how is it? Cause remember what Neo and all of them do ends up killing people, right? They don't just fight the agents. They, there are people who, you know, if you die in the matrix, then you die in real life that they don't really dwell on this too much, but presumably my understanding of what's going on in that movie is right. When they're, you know, breaking in, and freeing Morpheus, there's a bunch of people who are plugged into the Matrix that are jolting and then not waking up again because of that, all right? And they can say, well, they were, they were enthralled in the system and they were our enemy and did it. And I'm just saying that's, that's a really dangerous road to go down. And I'm concerned that I've seen people voicing arguments that taken to their logical conclusion would mean hey, if anybody has ever voted for a politician besides Ron Paul or Dave Smith, then, you know, fair game. You know, it's the same thing as if I were in France in 1943, and were, you know, resisting the Nazi occupiers. And no, it, it's really not like that. All right. And so there's lots of reasons. But for one, most of the public doesn't view it like that. And that does make a difference. Okay, just like the same thing with, you know, the abortion debate, even though people who are pro-life say that, oh yeah, it's murder of a child and it's, you know, it's the same thing in principle as somebody who takes a two-year-old and drowns them or whatever. Even they, most of them don't actually act like that, right? Like if you were at a dinner party and somehow it came up that the lady three places, you know, down from you had had an abortion at one point, they probably would still, you know, pass her the gravy and whatnot, Whereas if they had learned that, oh yeah, the lady three spots down at the table had drowned her two-year-old in a bathtub when she was younger, they might act differently, 
All right. And again, part of the reason for that, besides the objective differences, is that our society, you know, people who grow up in our society are taught that abortion is not the same thing as killing a two-year-old. And they, and most people believe that because that's what they were taught. Right. And so that does, that does matter that the, what you're, what you think you're doing. And so for people who are raised to believe that, oh, democracy is the just form of government, just expressing the will of the people, and this is progress, yay, they honestly are not analyzing the situation. They do not think that they're initiating aggression the way, you know, a standard Rothbard analysis would entail. And that does matter. Intent really does matter, right? If somebody is honestly confused and gets into your car and drives away, like the car is running and let's say they left their car running too, uh, both outside the store and your cars look very similar and they get out and jump in and drive away. If they honestly didn't think they were stealing your car, that would matter in terms of what you could do to them. All right. So another consideration, again, here in this one, I'm not really giving a comprehensive response. I'm just giving you some initial considerations to sharpen your thoughts on these matters. In standard Rothbardian analysis, there's proportionality. Well, I don't even want to just say Rothbardian because the point is some people are saying we're going to throw that out the window. But just under just about any ethical framework at all, there's proportionality. So if somebody steals your wallet, you don't get to go shoot them in response. And you certainly don't get to shoot their kid in response, right? There's proportionality. And different ethical systems have different rules for what the appropriate maximum level of retaliation or restitution and punishment is allowable given the initial offense. But for most cases, it's not, hey, you know, once they do the slightest provocation, then they're a complete outlaw and you can do whatever you want to them. No, most systems don't say that for obvious reasons because it's inherently unjust and it would lead to a cycle of, you know, Hatfield and McCoy kind of situation. All right. So even if you want to argue that, well, no, somebody who voted for Biden knew full what they were doing, Bob, and they're supporting these vaccine mandates and da 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 da. Okay. But still, what does that mean then? It doesn't mean anything goes because they initiated aggression under any standard theory of ethics. Okay. And, and again, see, here, here's what troubles me. It's not merely that I've seen some people disagreeing and saying, you know, in this situation, these people over here have their set of principles, but I think that's a bad set of principles. And what I have are these sets of principles. And I think in this situation, my principles make more sense, blah, 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 blah. That would be one thing. Yeah. Principles blindly applied often lead to silliness. You know, somebody's dogmatic about something, it can be ridiculous and in, in a, an intense situation, it might lead to horror. But what I've seen is people mocking others for having principles, period. Like it's, oh, you got your principles, not, oh, you have those principles and those really aren't good ones to have. Why don't you consider this set of principles, which is what I embrace? No, it's instead, oh, you got your principles, okay. And yeah, right. It's not lame to have principles. That's ostensibly what distinguishes you from the bad guys. If you're throwing principles out the window, then you don't have any claim to legitimacy. And you're just saying... I want things a certain way. Those people over there don't. And I want to win because I like me. Who do I love? I love me. All right. And, you know, maybe you're just being honest and okay, but you're not going to win too many adherents that way. And you're not in the right once you say that. So, you know, again, some of this stuff is pretty obvious, but 
I feel like I need to say it because lots of people are, like I say, mocking people clinging to the NAP when they're not given something to replace it. They're just sort of holding up Mike makes right. Speaking of which, I've also seen a similar argument that goes like this, that I've seen this one around for years, but I've seen it more frequently in recent times where people will say something like, you only have your rights to the extent that you're willing to use force to defend them. Something like that. And no, that is 100% wrong. That's why they're called rights. That means you have them either because of God, if you believe in God, or because of the, the nature of man, or, or if you're a utilitarian, because that's what maximizes social outcomes, blah, 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 whatever. The framework is when you have rights, that means they're yours. You're entitled to them. Now, it's a separate matter whether you can enforce them. And so maybe someone can violate your rights, but it's not that if someone violates your rights, it means you never really had them in the first place. If you go down that route, you're throwing out the notion of rights altogether. And you're just saying, who should have this house? Well, whoever can take it with guns. And that, that's who the owner is. I mean, that, no. You, you, again, you just, you're throwing out the notion of ownership and just saying, you know, it's like the animal kingdom at that point. Just, you know, whoever's the dominant alpha male gets the house, period. You know, it's not right or wrong. It just is. Okay. If you want to analyze human society like that, go ahead. But don't bring in rights language because, you know, you've thrown out the concept of rights altogether. Let me just mention, I'm not going to do a full-scale analysis here because I'm not ready to, but I have been reading, like I say, some stuff from Mencius Moldbug on this. And I understand why he's appealing to people. And I also understand, like, I, don't, I stopped calling myself a libertarian too. And when did I do that? I think it was in 2020. Because they were annoying the crap out of me with the, uh, their defense of that Cuties movie and Netflix carrying. And it wasn't just that they were saying, hey, you know, all things considered, we think that it's, you know, Netflix shouldn't be boycotted and, you know, there's other things to worry. No, it's not what they're They were just mocking people. Like, oh, the very idea that some people are upset about this movie. Oh, my gosh. Give me a break, Grandpa. Next thing you tell me, what, Elvis is singing devil music too? <laughs> and then that's when I just lost it. I said, you know what? I don't even want to be confused with these people. So I, in my Twitter bio, I took off the term libertarian, right? So believe me, I get it when certain people who are conservative right-wingers think that the standard libertarian set, particularly the ones concentrated in Washington, are completely out of touch and they're ignoring important issues. So I get it. But I think when the conclusion is, oh, instead of being afraid to get our hands dirty, let's go ahead and seize power ourselves and fight fire with fire, that again, that is a very dangerous road to go down. And you risk losing your soul. And let me just give you one example, the kind of thing I mean, just to have specifics. So lots of people I know were applauding Governor Abbott's recent executive order. Someone claimed the legislature didn't uphold it. I haven't followed the story, but where he said it's illegal for any business in Texas to impose a vaccine requirement on its uh, employees. Okay. Now I understand where that's coming from. And I understand that, you know, oh, well, Biden's doing his stuff. So we got to stand up somehow. Okay. But as I pointed out, one little detail the forthcoming Biden mandate was only going to apply to firms with 100 or more employees. And as far as I could tell, the Texas executive order applied to all firms. 
Okay, so the people who were saying, no, this is just counteracting, were being sloppy. They didn't even bother reading the stuff. Okay, and, I, and that's kind of what I mean is it's devolved into just, hey, there's their side and our side, and I'm not going to really pay too much attention to the, to the methods we use because we're the good guys. And also, too, I've seen this undercurrent of commentary where it's even if you say true statements that everybody would acknowledge in and of themselves are true statements about reality, if that somehow furthers the, the narrative or the public relations campaign of the regime, then you're suspect and, you know, and basically you're partially responsible for my business being shut down. And again, when you've reached the point at which someone just making true statements about viruses, for example, is now part of the enemy and can be resisted with initiated coercion because, oh, really, they're helping those guys over there, even if what they're doing is literally just saying, even if that's not what they're trying to do, too, even if it's not even the intent. So I guess what I'm saying is some of you, I think, are maybe you don't fully realize it, but the positions you're espousing, if taken to their logical conclusion, mean that you can do anything you want to just about anybody walking around on planet Earth. And so you've basically turned into the the guy from No Country for Old Men, you know, the villain, not the not the guy who finds the money. And that's not that's not good. <laughs> if that's where you you found yourself that, well, actually, it turns out that ethically I'm allowed to do just about anything I want, and it's only expediency that might make me refrain in a certain situation from doing it. If you found yourself in that position, you've done something wrong. That no, your ethical system should make it so that you're not allowed to do anything you want to just about anybody on earth. And yet, like I say, some of the principles, some of you are espousing that I'm reading online would mean you could do just about anything to anybody. And no, you can't do that. The ends do not justify the means. Okay, last thing I'll mention is, oh, sorry, just to finish the train of thought on Curtis Yardman. So like I say, I will do a better, more comprehensive response when I've read more and digested more. But I actually am sympathetic to a lot of his stuff about anti-democratic and things like that. Yep, yep. So when you think through the essence of what democracy, examples that I've used for decades, I said, you wouldn't want to have a local election to determine your car mechanic or your babysitter, right? That would be horrifying. Imagine if the way you picked the person that was going to be in charge of watching your little baby when you went to the movies with your spouse was through a local election. I mean, you just, you wouldn't go out. You wouldn't trust that system, but yet that's the system we trust to pick the mayor. And the same thing, you wouldn't trust somebody to change your brakes who was elected through the political process. You, you would be very cautious about riding in that car. And yet again, that's how we pick judges, or at least in some areas, that's how judges are picked. Who determines, you know, if people get thrown in cages or not. That's horrifying when you think it through. And the reason most Americans just take that for granted is they've just been taught that. And they think, well, there's no alternative. They think the alternative is, you know, a system where there still is a territorial monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And there is this one agency in charge of all the cages and law enforcement. And the question is just, are the people going to have some control over that thing? Or is it just going to be, you know, a tyrant or a group of rich people? If they think that's what the choices are, then obviously the average person is going to say, well, no, I want to at least be able to cast a vote to have some influence on what happens. And so they just don't understand the possibilities of having decentralized private provision of those services, right? So I get where Curtis Jarvin's coming from with a lot of his analysis, 
But then when it comes to his solution, and again, I need to read more, but it sounds like we're going to appoint a person or a committee that's going to be in charge of breaking everything up and that that initial stage is going to involve the creation of more power before it's hopefully dismantled. And that's not going to work out well. And by the way, it's not going to work like the public's not going to go along with it anyway. All right. So a principle here that I think is very useful, and I'm just adapting this from Rothbard, so I'm not saying I'm going to say it exactly the same way he did, but I think it's consistent, is Rothbard was saying, it is fine ethically to support a reduction in state power, right? So if if some politician says, hey, I want to reduce the income tax from 35% down to 28%, you can applaud that as a libertarian. And especially if the person just like wants to get rid of, you know, the estate tax altogether, you can totally applaud that. It's not that you have to be a purist and say, well, no, unless you're getting up there and advocating complete anarcho-capitalism, I will not support you. So, you know, Rothbard said, no, that was goofy. You can applaud reductions. What you can't do, Rothbard said, is ever applaud the increase in state power, even if you think, oh, that's a means to an end. And eventually down the road, that will, you know, lead to better outcomes. All right, so for example, there's a lot of people on the right who are against the deductibility of health insurance premiums, or rather, that you don't have to declare that as compensation in kind. All right, so the federal tax code right now, the way it's structured, favors employers providing health insurance to their employees rather than just giving them everything in wages or salary and having the employees go out and shop and buy their own insurance policies. And it's because of the tax treatment. If your employer pays whatever, $30,000 a year in premiums for you and your family, that's not taxable income the way if they gave you just a $30,000 in extra salary and then you went out and bought it. You'd get taxed in that $30,000, right? So there's a lot of people on the right that want to get rid of that, quote, loophole in the tax code. And they think that would be an increase in liberty and would be a move towards efficiency. And, you know, if it were tied with a tax rate reduction, that would be better and more defensible, but even there, technically not, because to make it revenue neutral, it would still be a net tax increase on the people who previously were enjoying, you know, the, the big health insurance premium for their employer, right? Just like in general, moving towards a flat tax, you know, oh, let's get rid of all the loopholes and deductions and just have, or just have a standard deduction and just have one flat tax rate that brings in, you know, have it be revenue neutral. Well, if you do that, some people are going to see their net taxes go up, namely the people who in the original equilibrium benefited from a lot of those loopholes, all right? And so, again, I think Rothbard would say you can't advocate that as a, as a genuine libertarian. If somebody wants to just lower the tax rate, great. But if someone wants to, quote, close the loopholes, then to the extent that that means some people would see their taxes go up, notice you're advocating to increase taxes on that person. So if you think taxation is theft, you're advocating for an increase in theft and that's impermissible. The ends do not justify the means. You can't rob more from somebody and then say, well, but I'm doing it for a good reason. And if you do, okay, well then you're not different in principle from the statists. Like they say, oh yeah, we're, we're taking money from people against their will, I guess, if you want to look at it like that. But we're funding soup kitchens and hey, we got to have a military to defend us from foreign invasions. So give me a break. It's okay to do it in this situation. All right. So that's a principle as well. And so with that, yes, 
keep in mind, I am not saying, or not keep in mind, but I want to reiterate or, or clarify, my point with these remarks is not to say, if you're a good libertarian, all you can ever say is anarchy, 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 and just, you know, just turn off the TV and don't pollute yourself with these political affairs. I'm not saying that. And I'm not even saying you should have no opinion on political issues or you, you can't have preferences. But again, I think where you do run into trouble is if you're openly applauding something that is increasing coercion on at least some people. Also, too, the thing is, with a lot of this stuff, it's not like whether or not you retweet something and say, hooray, on Twitter, it's going to change what happens. All right, so for most of this stuff, for most of us, we're just in the peanut gallery anyway. And so it really is goofy for you to say something that technically you think is immoral because you think it's, it's a, you know, serving a good cause. So just to make sure you're not losing me, if you were actually Governor Abbott and you made that decision and you said, yeah, technically there's some employers in here with 57 employees that they might really be, if you know, have a lot of customers who have immune system issues and they might feel better if they knew that all the people were vaccinated and blah, blah, blah. And plus they're going to wear masks. And, and so we're going to do it. And, and then Governor Abbott says, no, you can't do it. But he's doing it because he thinks on that that's going to promote liberty in Texas. Okay. I understand that. You know, I might disagree, but if you were actually the governor and made such a trade-off, such a choice, fine. But if you're just somebody on Twitter, <laughs> you're not really affecting things one way or the other by you endorsing that. Really all you're doing, I would say, is you're endorsing the idea that our principles aren't really that important and we're at war here and throw out principles and it's just us versus them. And I think that's not a good thing to do. All right. What else do I want to talk about? Mike Trump. What else? Okay. Last thing I will say is, again, for those of you who now have me pigeonholed, and you're like, oh, Bob, you're just sitting there with your libertarian pamphlets and your fantasy world. I spent the summer working on a pamphlet talking about the benefits of having an independent Texas. Okay. So that's what I've thought. You know, I personally am pushing in terms of what can we do in the real world right now in the face of this unprecedented assault by the federal government in conjunction with big tech and academia and big ed education against regular Americans. You know, I'm, I'm not naive. I, I see this coming too. This is crazy. The growth in the Leviathan surveillance big brother state in the last few years is way more rapid than what I had thought it was going to be. If you'd asked me five years ago, it's not that the U S government right now is doing stuff that I thought was impossible. I just didn't think it would have happened this quickly. All right. And so, you know, I've changed my focus, my emphases in terms of the stuff that I'm talking about. I still, you know, believe in broad based education that ultimately winning hearts and minds is the, is the true path to a stable, secure, free society. But, in the meantime, you know, what practical steps can be taken? And I think if the people of Texas openly declared we are no longer part of the U.S. federal system, that would be a very good move to preserve liberty in the short to medium run. And I think it's consistent with the principles that I've espoused thus far. So they wouldn't be saying, and now we are forming a new government in the region called Texas, and it's going to have all these powers and we're going to have an income tax and a standing army. They start doing that. Well, then, yeah, they're enhancing 
state power in one dimension at least. And, you know, and, and I would say, no, I wouldn't support that. And if they care what my opinion is, people who like my original pamphlet, I would, I will tell them, no, don't do that. Do not institute an income tax. Do not foster a standing army that it's both immoral and you will regret it. Just like, you know, Samuel telling the Israelites, you do not want a king. Do not be like the other nations. Okay. But just to, to merely declare, we are no longer considering ourselves part of the Washington DC apparatus. There's nothing unlibertarian about that. And for practical strategic reasons, I think it makes sense for Texas to do that. If they do it and they do it peacefully, then that's an increase in, in liberty, I would say. It has, it's both principled and it has very good pragmatic effects. Last thing I'll say in all this stuff is, and when I said if they do it peacefully, that's what jogged my memory. Last thing I will say is this. Whenever there is some sort of, you know, whether it's a shooting or, remember, I remember when Timothy McVeigh was accused of uh, bombing a federal building, there's lots of people, quote, conspiracy theorists who say, oh, it's a false flag. You know, I don't, I don't think McVeigh did that. Either he was duped or he was completely set up and somebody else. And, and what's, the, what's the theory behind that? The idea is that, oh, in order to solidify its power and or to justify gun control, the federal government and its minions would like the public to believe that there are these radical groups that are actively hurting people or blowing stuff up. Right, so everybody understand whether or not a particular incident was a false flag or not, but you get you get the idea. You understand the claim, right? Okay. So if we can all agree that it helps the federal government when someone does something like that, then you should not be saying that stuff is on the table now. Because by your side's own logic, that kind of stuff helps the regime. All right, so you would be doing, you know, to the extent that an innocent person was hurt, stuff that's immoral in terms of the means and it doesn't achieve your end. Okay, so just keep that in mind. All right, see you folks next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.